the ship's company knew that they just had to do a job and whatever you were sort of thinking in the back of your mind about the rights and the wrongs of what's going on, we just had to put all of that aside. If we had not located that vessel, everyone on board that ship would have perished, I'm sure of it. Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. The single greatest sacrifice I've made is my family. We weren't out there to take country, we were out on your country. I did feel a lot of regret. Friends were still getting killed. It got to the point where, you know, you're going to funerals quite Do often. I lead under fire? And that was a heavy responsibility, I guess, on my shoulders that I didn't want to you screw up. War itself is horrific. It's a horror story. It should never be dressed up as if it's something glorious. Not what you can do for yourself or what can you do for your country. The volunteer for service was, in effect, to put your life on the line. Welcome to the Season 5 finale of Life on the Line. Today's episode is with Casey Mumford. Casey was an officer in the Royal Australian Navy. She deployed to Timor, the Arabian Gulf, and was on HMAS Manura during the MV Tampa incident in 2001. This is our conversation. I'm Alex Lloyd, speaking today with Casey Mumford. Casey, welcome to Life on the Line. Thanks for having me, Alex. Casey, where were you born? Where did you grow up? Um, I was born in Darwin in the Northern Territory, but I mostly grew up in Canberra uh, in the ACT. So my father was in the Navy, so I spent the first half a dozen years of my life uh, moving around. We lived in Darwin a couple of times. Uh, We also lived in Victoria for a little while, and then my parents finally settled in Canberra about the same time that my brother and I were starting uh, primary school. That coincided with the time that Dad was leaving the Navy, so they bought our first home there and that's where we finished our schooling off. Was joining the Navy or the military a first in your father's generation or was there a family tradition going further back than that? My mother's side of the family um, immigrated from Poland after the Second World War, so my grandfather was in the Polish army as well. Um, But other than that, no, dad was really the first uh, to join up. I suppose though with that ancestry where war was quite a fact of life and then your father's uh, service, was it kind of normalised then for you, the concept of military and service? It wasn't that foreign to you, it was just immediate and everyday life yeah exactly and it was it I felt always felt very comfortable with it as well and I think that was because of the exposure that I had because of dad then in high school when I was looking at different career options um, joining the navy was always something that was on on the table for me I did my uh, year 10 work experience um, with the navy my father also organized for me to spend some time um, with a midshipman who was studying at adfa just so i could get an idea of you know what her career path looked like and what a day in the life of a, a cadet at, at adfa was like too when i finished year 12 I, I didn't actually join the navy i took up an option to study at the australian national university um, i lasted about six months there before i realized i'd made the wrong decision and and went straight to a Defence Force recruitment office and said, I want to go to, I want to join the Navy and go and study through ADFA. Before we jump from ANU to ADFA, did you ever get a chance to speak with your grandparents about 
the Second World War? I didn't get to speak to my grandfather a lot about it. He passed away when I was in primary school. But my grandmother, she um, she passed away last year, actually. I used to speak to her a lot about it. And, you know, she would sort of tell us about playing in the forest when the um, German bombers were coming over into, um, into Poland. Uh, she told us about how she used to babysit um, some Jewish children and families. And then she said after the Germans had invaded Poland, she went back to visit these families and they just disappeared. And she also told us about when they were all rounded up and they all got put into a working camp and what the conditions were like in the working camp. Um, so, yeah, I did talk to her a lot about her life in, in Europe during the Second World War. It was just fascinating. Because it's a completely different world than when you're marching into ADVA as a cadet and thankfully a much happier and safer world. But I guess still that's got to be in the back of the mind somewhere that, you know, these are the frontline realities of what can end up occurring. Or was it actually just you were more looking to your dad and love of the sea and love of the idea of Navy? What was the sort of big draw card for you ultimately? Um, I think it was more um, the adventure and um, and being at sea and 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 the travel for me. So when I reflected on my childhood a little bit, it does have a pretty strong maritime flavour to it. So my dad has always loved fishing. We've always had boats in our family. So we, I remember even in primary school sitting out in a boat with him and he was teaching me Morse code. And I can also remember, you know, he would point out the navigation markers when we were travelling along in the, in the boat going to our next fishing spot. So it does have this, I guess, this strong maritime flavour. And then also some of his behaviours that sort of carried on after he'd left the Navy too. Um, so, yeah, it was something that seemed quite familiar and I, I was quite comfortable with. Yeah, it was it was something I always thought this, I think this would be a really good thing to do. Well, you do it. How did you find ADVA versus ANU? More to your liking and more to your style? I did like the structure a lot. So um, I found um, going from, uh, I went to an all-girls Catholic school. Um, so I found going from a, that environment to ANU, I just felt like it was, you know, like my whole world had opened up really, really quickly. So when I went to ADFRA, I did feel like there was a little bit more scrutiny and a little bit more accountability around my studies. So I think that was really good for me. But, you know, uh, ADFRA in the 90s, as you, you probably have learned from some of the other guests, could be quite a merciless place as well. So I'm, I'm fully aware that not everyone had a positive experience there. I certainly, I, I really enjoyed it. I had a lot of fun and formed, you know, life lifelong friendships at ADFA. That's great. And then after your three years at ADFA, you go on to the Seaman Office Application course. Um, yeah, so that's the that's the professional training course for Seaman officers in the in the Navy. It's it's probably called something else now. But essentially, there's four phases of training, um, and it's a mixture of classroom training and then training at sea. Um, I took up an option when I was in third year at the Australian Defence Force Academy to start phase one of my um, semen officer application course concurrent with uh, my third year studies. So when I finished at ADFRA at the end of 1999, I went straight to sea in HMS Tobruk um, and that was for phase two of my training. Um, that's a three-month phase at sea. We went to um, East Timor and Bougainville but just in a logistics support capacity so they're very quick trips um, and then we went to Norfolk Island and New Zealand and then came home. 
Then phase three of the training is a navigation watchkeeping component of training. So once again, there's another classroom component. And then I went to see in the survey motor launches. So I posted to HMAS Benalla in Cairns. While I was there, Benalla went into quite an extensive refit, which meant I was going to be ashore for my commanding officer thought too long and wasn't getting enough experience at sea. So he organised for me to augment the bridge team of HMAS Mermaid um, and I went back to East Timor in HMAS Mermaid. It's a very practical for the Navy officers then. You're getting to Timor, to Bougainville, and you're at sea as part of your learning, which is a great way to get stuck into that i mean that must have just been so exhilarating to be at sea so quickly and you know you're learning but you're also doing the work that's something i also reflect on as well that and i think especially in boats uh servo motor launches and patrol boats because the ship's company is quite small you're automatically included um in whatever is going on because you're you know you're you're a valuable resource on board that on board that boat so it was a great experience experience not only for um, me in a professional sense as a seaman officer but you, you kind of forced to learn the jobs of other people as well so for example when our radio operator was not available but there had to be signals download loaded I'd have to go into the comm and download the signals or if we came across another warship at sea um, the protocol is to exchange IDs with, with that warship so I was on the flashing light exchanging IDs I was in the cable locker I think at one stage as well because um, we had some people ashore and and we were we had to go to anchor so I just jumped into the cable locker to you know assist the ship to go to anchor so there I was as a, a young midshipman just jumping in and doing whatever had to be done and and that's that's just the way it goes on the, on those ships and uh, when you're on HMAS Mermaid and back in East Timor I understand that some of the local kids were interested in what you guys were up to so we were doing um, survey opera, collecting survey data in East Timor to update the navigation charts, which had become you know quite out of date. So we were not only doing collecting that survey data at sea by you know by doing depth soundings um, and that sort of thing, but we were actually ashore as well, positioning conspicuous objects, coastlining. I, I did a tide camp, those sorts of things. And whenever I was off the boat and and trudging around, I just had this entourage of village children that used to follow me um, wherever I went. And I think they just wanted to be involved. They were very curious. So I just used to let them carry things for me. It didn't occur to me at the time, I guess, that, you know, if they legged it, I would have lost my GPS, my spare batteries, my water, um, the radio back to the ship, everything. But thankfully, they just, they stayed around and they just wanted to help. So I just used to give them things and say, okay, well, you can carry this and we're going up that hill, let's go. Yeah, but inevitably, there was always, there was always one that would pull out a machete and that was generally one of the children that I didn't give any a task to and uh, I realised pretty quickly that um, he just wanted to, he thought he could help by clearing a path for me so he would use this machete to to clear the path for me so that was fine I, I never felt like I was in danger or anything like that. Fails a few OHS and working with children's standards in Australia but we'll move past that. You're on phase four and consolidation, and again, you're still in your training phase here, is on HMAS Menorah. And before we get to what Menorah is known for in 
2001. Just tell me a bit about this ship and some of the work you're doing on us and when you join, what you're expecting the ship to be up to. I joined Minera in the July of 2001, straight off the bridge simulator, and I was there to get my bridge warfare certificate. So it was the final stage of my training. Minera and Canimbla had traditionally been heavily relied upon. They were Australia's amphibious capability at the time. They worked a lot in a tri-service exercise environment and were also called upon to respond to any local geopolitical um, emergencies, so peacekeeping in the Solomon Islands and that sort of thing. So my expectation was that I would be engaged in that sort of work. However, when I joined Manura, she had been scheduled to um, undertake a diplomatic trip to Southeast Asia, taking in four ports, Manila in the Philippines, Ho Chi Minh City in Vietnam, Bangkok in Thailand, and then Penang in Malaysia. So when I joined the ship, there was a real buzz on board. People were really excited because they were actually doing something that was completely different to what they had been doing previously. And then Menorah becomes involved in the infamous Tampa affair, as it's known, and uh, avid listeners of this podcast who heard number 114, Bruce McLennan, have already heard the perspective of the Special Air Service Regiment that were utilised to seize the vessel, take initial control, and provide that very first initial point of care to the asylum seekers. Casey, can you run us through your perspective on what happens in the Tampa affair from Menorah? The first time I realised that um, we weren't going to be making it into Bangkok was um, I had an understanding of what the ocean passage plan, the navigation plan looked like. And I just remember this, this night, the ship made a huge turn that was unexpected. And I was waiting actually for a man overboard pipe and it, it didn't come. Uh, so when I got up to go and watch, the navigator was up frantically drawing up charts and I noted that we were fixing the ship through the Indonesian archipelago and I said to the navigator, what's going on? And he said, uh, we've got to go to Christmas Island. We've been asked to assist with, a, um, with an incident. The picture was something that just evolved over time. You know, the communication systems on board ships were not the same as they are now. We didn't have Skype or, you know, all of these different ways of communicating with our families. We just had emails and actually our emails were disconnected as well for operational reasons. So it wasn't that easy to, I guess, get information about what was going on. So I guess the penny didn't really drop for me until um, we started loading a lot of humanitarian stores on board. So a lot of stretch. Um, and it was really little things like baby formula, seeing baby formula being brought on board, that really struck me and I thought we're dealing with very vulnerable people, with families, probably with people who are sick, pregnant women, that sort of thing. So that's when it really hit home for me um, what was unfolding and also by that stage um, I think we all had a fairly clear picture of just how politically sensitive the issue was too for, that, for the Howard government. When we first sighted uh, the Tampa, it was kind of hard to see the number of people um, that were on board the Tampa. But it was when we started doing these boat transfers and they just kept coming and coming and coming. And then I remember I went down to the tank deck and the entire tank deck was just full of stretches. And then once we had embarked the security element and additional personnel plus all of the asylum seekers, our ship's company had swollen to about 800. So it became a real logistical challenge to, to support these people and, and keep them safe while we worked out exactly what was going on. Because at that stage, we didn't even know where we were going. 
when I had a look back through the ship's logs more recently, it had that we were transiting to Port Moresby. So there was a lot of confusion and uncertainty about where we were going. And I also recall uh, we did a, a replenishment sea with HMAS West Australia and um, our RAS breakaway song was um, Road to Nowhere by Talking Heads. So you take on board the 430 or so Afghan, mostly Afghan asylum seekers, and there's another wave of those, which we'll get to in a moment. But you take on these asylum seekers, and as you say, it's a politically sensitive issue for the government at the time. It's a politically divisive issue today in how various governments have handled asylum seekers. But I suppose whatever one thinks of the politics or what our preferred border policy, etc., should be, it doesn't change the fact that you're there seeing the human face of that it's not a grainy image on the television or just a statistic in a newspaper column that is a bunch of people right there mothers with children etc as you were outlining you've not even completed your training then that's uh must be have been very confronting not just for you but for everyone on board i guess can you paint a bit more of the human picture you were faced with as well as the logistics of yes how do we fit this many people safely on the ship and that kind of thing down to just that actually interacting with them and dealing with them it was a very morally complex situation and there were you know i'm sure a range of views on on board amongst the ship's company about you know whether we should be doing more or doing less and 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 everything in between and i i still notice now whenever the topic of tamper is raised amongst members of the ship's company at the time it's highly emotive too People were genuinely wrestling with being morally challenged by what was happening. But at the end of the day, I think we all knew that we had to do a job and we had to do it professionally and sensitively and that it had to be in alignment with the national interests as well. But, yeah, in terms of that human face, it was really confronting. It was, you know, a lot of people as well, we're talking about 2001, didn't have that cultural exposure as well. Seeing, you know, that there was a bit of a pecking order amongst um, men and women and children, that was all very visible to people. And I know that, for example, a lot of the, some of the sailors used to play soccer um, on the upper deck with the, with the kids and, you know, try and keep them entertained and things like that. So, yeah, I think overall the ship's company knew that they just had to do a job and whatever you were sort of thinking in the back of your mind about the rights and the wrongs of what's going on, we just had to put all of that aside. Well, that's the mark of a professional military member and that you know you are not the policy creators nor should you be you are fulfilling the mandate and the mission of the day and that can be dissected later by the public and the press that's for there you have to execute a function and so whatever people think of they're doing it's great that you are able to do that but also find little slithers of human kindness and empathy the image of you know some of our sailors playing soccer with the kids on the deck is a beautiful thing and it's you know i'm sure obviously for the asylum seekers it would have been an incredibly uh, stressful and challenging period just you know the voyage to australia let alone everything else that happens so you know having little moments like that there'll be little gems that stand out in a difficult period the challenge is further raised when an extra 230 or so iraqi asylum seekers are added to the equation I think that's um, something that's often overlooked. The Tampa is just the thing that's talked about, but there was actually this whole extra not insignificant contingent. Can you talk to that? Yeah, that that was, to me, probably more alarming than the Tampa. I remember I was on watch when we first sighted the Ascenge. So the Ascenge was a barely seaworthy Indonesian fishing boat that was grossly overborne. It had about 230 mostly Iraqi asylum seekers on board and we located them off, 
just off Ashmore Reef um, in our northern waters. The boat was taking on water and to this day, if I go to a children's playground and I see something sticky that's been dropped on the ground, like a, a lollipop or a, you know, a, a honey sandwich, piece of honey sandwich, it's just crawling with ants. That is what the superstructure of the Ascent looked like. It was so dangerous. And, you know, that I guess that was really the time when I started thinking more about, I guess, asking those questions about, you know, people choosing to um, come to Australia for a better life, but at what cost, you know, what risk are you willing to, uh, or what, you know, what extent are you willing to go to to seek that better life? If we had not located that vessel, everyone on board that ship would have perished, I'm sure of it. It's not just that Tampa itself is a challenging incident to confront and handle, but it's also the fact that it is a political catalyst and it's heralded back to two decades later, we're still talking about it because it was sort of this real spark, this initial lightning point. And I guess that also keeps bringing it back and it's not something that's deep in the past in the back of your mind. It keeps being brought up and I'm, you know, part of the problem there for doing that. Before we finish the story of the Tampa, I guess, how do you just look back and reflect on the coverage, I guess, in the immediate aftermath and then over the many years, the fact this isn't just a small incident that you can bury in your Navy career, that it's um, there in such a talking point and how that marries up with your own memories and perceptions of the events. Yeah, and it's it's interesting because it is really a relatively short period of time too. I think that the total time at sea that we we were dealing with this was 31 days. So in terms of, you know, a, a career spanning several years, it's such a short period of time, but my recollections of that event are still so vivid and I don't think it's anything that will ever leave me or leave anyone who was on board at the time. And you're right, it does come up whenever there's an election. Inevitably, there's something about border border politics comes up. I think it's just something that, I, I don't know, I've just, I guess I've just sort of tried to put it aside as being something that happened and something that I know that with the ship dealt with very professionally and very in a very caring way. And then we we really, I, I, and I guess 9-11 happened as well. So when we were on our way to Nauru, I think we were around the Torres Strait area, 9-11 happened. And that really, I guess, provided an impetus for um, the government to try and find a solution, get to a conclusion for this, because it wasn't long after that that we, that we found out that Manura would be deploying to the Gulf too. So I think things did move quite quickly past them, but you're right, it's something that does come up all the time. And at this point, I normally ask what your memory of 9-11 is, because it's something everyone has a vivid memory of because it's 9-11, but then it's, and not much else was happening for our military at the time, but then you're one of the few things that there was something happening. I mean, I'm sure it registered, but like, what was your perception of 9-11 when you're dealing with this other big thing at the moment? And, you know, your menorah has got its normal complement of 220 years swelled to over a thousand and you're at this point you'll be steaming the refugees to Nauru so how does 9-11 occur I guess from that perspective? I can remember reading about planes going to the Twin Towers and the other terrorist attacks in in the U.S via a signal and it was a voluminous signal pages and pages and I remember just standing there and I read the whole thing but because we were at sea and you know we didn't have communication available to us I didn't actually see the footage of 9-11 until October sometime and I can remember I was at my parents house and I remember seeing the footage for the first time and my mum looked at me and she said have you seen this and I said no 
And she said, this is all we've seen for the last month. You know, it's been such a um, significant global issue. So really the only exposure that I had to 9-11 was that signal, reading that signal, and then um, developing that understanding that we needed to go to the Gulf. So we would we needed to find a, you know, get to an end state with Tampa and then quickly get, get back to Australia so that we could start working up to an operational level of capability and deploying to the Gulf. So it's October 2000. 2001, you disembark the asylum seekers and then January 2002, you are off to the Gulf. What is your mission there? The um, UN sanctions against um, Iraq had been in force since the Iran-Iraq war. So it'd been about 11 years for these UN sanctions. So we were going to be relieving other ships that were already there um, to participate in those sanctions. So we're conducting maritime interception operations, effectively blockading um, Iraqi territorial waters and, and with the power, sorry, to query and board any vessel that was suspected of smuggling oil or any contraband out of Iraq. We had our own ship's boarding party. We also had a boarding party comprising of members of uh, Australian Clearance Dive Team 4. Um, we had the uh, Commander Task Group embarked, and that was um, led by Admiral James Goldrick, who held the rank of captain at the time. And he was the Maritime Interception Force Commander. And we also had augmented our warfare capability with members of 16 Air Defence and we had the Navy SEALs embarked too. So they were we were essentially a, a launching platform for them to conduct their own operations. So qu- quite a busy ship during that Gulf deployment. And how did you feel going from, you know, a ship that had been meant to be touring around Asia and having a bit of fun and dealing with that quick refugee crisis to then you're going to the Northern Hemisphere, you're going into what's regarded as a war zone after a cataclysmic event. What were your feelings at the time processing all that? The seriousness of what I was doing just escalated exponentially. You know, all of a sudden I wasn't doing my officer of the day duties in my whites. I was doing my officer of the day duties wearing a Kevlar vest and a helmet and, and carrying a sidearm. We weren't bringing the ship alongside as we normally would. We had force protection transition team who were clearing the wharf before we came alongside to make sure, you know, there weren't any um, any explosives or anything like that because we all had um, the USS Cole incident where our suicide boat laden with explosives rammed into the side um, while she was in port in Yemen in, in 2000. We were going into a very um, volatile and risky area. We had to transit through contested waters in the Straits of Hormuz. We had the threat of mines. We had we had chartered mines there. And then it's also a difficult area um, navigationally because of the shipping. It's, um, you know, there's a lot of traditional, not only the traditional fishing dows that operate in the area and they're either very poorly lit or not lit at all, but you've got these tankers and they are absolutely huge and then also obviously you know operating amongst uh, warships from a lot of different countries so it's just very busy very risky and very volatile the seriousness of that never left me and then around 30 boardings are conducted by Manura, compliant and non-compliant. And I'm not assuming you were sitting back on the bridge having fun while all this occurred, but did you sort of after the fact go, that was a really gratifying, you know, I got to exercise my professionalism, got to do the job for real, or what was your sort of reflection on that as the deployment unfolded? And I guess as you were steaming home. 
I felt like I had finally got to do the things that I had trained to do. So, you know, all of the things that we sort of learnt about in our course, it, it was all put into practice and, and then some. So I think like in terms of my own growth at that time, it was just, it was huge. It was huge um, professionally and also personally as well. And we did have a situation. So I, I was awarded my Bridge Warfare Certificate in the April of uh, 2002. And then about a month later, we were actually brought to action stations for real when we were threatened by the Iranian Revolutionary Coast Guard. And that was a really very serious situation. So we we were operating probably the furthest north that I can recall. I remember seeing some of the um, bog hammers, which are basically just small, light, manoeuvrable vessels with, they have RPGs and they have minimal manning, maybe two sometimes three people on board. Yeah, I remember seeing a couple of them and then all of a sudden they formed up. So there was this line abreast of about 10 and they started coming towards the ship. Our boarding party were in the water, so we couldn't recover them, which meant that we were undermanned for our weapon systems. And I can recall um, Commander McIntosh, who was part of the Commander Task Group, he came flying into the bridge and he said, if they come within 2,000 yards, you're to engage them. So we'd gone to action stations and then my, my next recollection is looking down onto the forecastle where we had 250 cows mounted and I ha- there was one able seaman, able seaman Faulkner manning 250 cows. I had someone on the radar calling the rangers in. Uh, we had an interpreter on the radio trying to communicate with them, telling them that, you know, if they came within 2,000 yards, we would open fire on them. It was a very, like, it, it really escalated very quickly and it was it was quite frightening. So we'd left the Gulf and we were coming home via Mauritius. There's fisheries, um, Australian fisheries, and so we the idea was that we were going to be coming home that way so we could just do a quick patrol through that area to make sure that there was no illegal fishing activity going on. Um, and so it was when we were transiting down the African coast, the swell was beam on for about five days the ship just copped it. I, I'm normally seasick for about a day. It took me about a day to find my sea legs. And then after that, I wouldn't get sick at all. But I was sick for the entire time that we were transiting to Mauritius. It just couldn't be over fast enough. It was it was dreadful. And then also, I think it's on your way home, you find out your next posting. And the fact is that you're going to be posted on a ship that's going back to the Gulf. So you've not you've completed your first deployment and you already know you're going back for another one, which many people would say, lucky you. <laughs> Always wanted to go to a, a frigate after Manura. Um, in fact, I wanted to go to a frigate when I finished phase four, but got posted to Manura, so I had to, had to wait. And um, my navigator um, had been talking to my poster and my poster knew what I wanted to do. So he came and saw me when we were on our way home and said, oh, I've got really exciting news. You've been posted to HMAS Newcastle. It's going to be really good for you. You've got a fantastic CO. You're going to have a great time. And so I, I was really excited and I said, can we go down to the operations room and print off our, the fleet activity schedule and have a look at what she's doing? And I think he saw my face just dropped when <laughs> when he gave me the fleet activity schedule and I realised I was you know, effectively turning around and coming back to the Gulf again. And how much time did you have between that? Did you get to see family or? We got back to Australia later in 2002. 
the first part of 2003 in Newcastle, we ended up um, doing more border protection work. We had a trip planned uh, that would take us up to Darwin for Anzac Day. And then we had a port visit to Geraldton and Bunbury and then back to Sydney, but uh, we didn't make it to Geraldton and Bunbury because there were more asylum seeker boats detected in the northern waters. So we ended up stationed off Christmas Island for a little while. And it was actually there that um, uh, there was a distress call that came in. So we ended up going and performing an, a, a rescue on a seven metre rowboat that had become distressed at sea. There were two adventure rowers who, uh, there were, I think they might have been ex-British Gurkhas. They decided they were going to try and row from uh, Carnarvon to La Reunion Island in a, in a seven-metre rowboat, hit rough weather. One of them sustained a head injury, uh, so they put a distress signal out and we ended up going and picking them up. Who foots the bill for a rescue operation like that? Do you invoice them or how, how does that work? Australia has the largest area responsible area for search and rescue operations. So I think it's just part of being a great global citizen that, you know, and you know, part of being a, a mariner is um, helping people who are in peril on the sea. So when you get that distress signal, you just you go and help people. And they were in peril because that's something like almost 6,000 kilometres apart they were rowing. So hats off to them. That's impressive. But anyway, you pick them up and then in July 2003, you're back off to the war zone. But is it less intimidating this time because you know what you're in for or because you know what you're in for, your feelings are heightened? What's your reaction going back? It was a different deployment. Uh, so the US had already invaded Iraq by that stage. I think they invaded Iraq in March of 2003 and we left Australia in July of 2003. So our role uh, when we got there was to provide maritime stability. So it was doing the same sort of work, but my recollections are that the tempo wasn't as high as when I was there in Manura. But I also, I do think, as you pointed to, Alex, that there were a couple of other factors that influenced that. We had quite a number of people on board the ship who had already, were, were coming back for their second trip by that stage uh, or, you know, had, had even been involved in enforcing UN sanctions previous to 9-11. Definitely a level of familiarity amongst the ship's company with the area that we were operating in and the type of work that we would be doing Newcastle was also um, the most senior ship in the fleet. We had um, Captain Jerry Christian was our was our CO, and he was a, just a wonderful CO, really, really competent, a great leader. So I think you know that made a huge difference um, to the ship as well. So I actually got asked by our commanding officer to navigate Newcastle home as well. My navigator at the time, Pete Collins, was going straight on to PWO course. So our CO took him off the bridge and put him into the operations room and I was the most senior um, watch keeper on board by that stage so the captain said you know do you want to take the ship home and I said oh, I would love to. And this is quite an honour because it's not punching in the address into Google Maps and hitting go this is um, you know it's a bit more to it than that can you allude to some of that? Um, yeah, so I had to do do the ocean passage plan. So that's prepare all of the charts, all of the information about where we were going to be, look at all of the weather, our fuel consumption. We came home via India. We um, had a port visit to Goa in India. 
we actually pulled into Fremantle in Australia. So it was a matter of getting the ship from the Gulf all the way to Fremantle. And then I had to present that to the CEO. So he he went through everything. He Every single chart, he pulled out every chart. He looked at the courses that I plotted. He questioned me about everything. Like to get him to actually give the nod of approval it was it was like a huge project and then once he had had agreed to that I had to pack up all my belongings and I moved into the chart house in HMAS Newcastle and suddenly realized that I wasn't responsible for my watch anymore I was responsible for every watch and we had a communication circuit that came through the chart house called 10MC and so I had heard you know all of the communication going on between the ops room the bridge etc I didn't sleep a lot on the, on the way home, but um, yeah, we, we got home safely. So it was, it was just a really huge achievement. I was really proud. You spent the next few years at HMAS Watson and Maritime Headquarters as a course coordinator and in human resource management. Can you sum up those roles and what you were doing? And then I guess how you start to come to the decision, perhaps it's time to leave the Navy. I left Newcastle in January of 2004 and took up a role as the basic navigation course coordinator at HMAS Watson. So I was instructing phase one of SEAC which is, you know, kind of brought me full circle back to where I started. Um, And that was, you know, teaching basic navigation to the junior officers who were graduating from um, HMAS Creswell and also ADFA. But I also then taught um, basic navigation to uh, submariners as part of their Petty Officers Watch course and their senior sailors, sailors on um, boats who also um, stand bridge watches. So I had some groups of the small boats, um, sailors coming through as well, uh, who I taught navigation to. So it was a huge variety um, of trainees, but it was it was a really, a really great job. The only thing about that job was um, the navigation training platform at the time. So I used to take them out to sea for a week after we'd finished the practical work. The navigation training platform was a, a boat called Seahorse Makeda, which was a Pacific class patrol boat, it was painted blue and yellow. And I used to get horrendously seasick in Makeda as well and and the crew knew they'd see me getting on board the ship and the master would come up to me and say after we get out of Sydney Heads are we going to Jervis Bay or we're going to Broken Bay because he knew I just wouldn't stay out and see in this thing then I went into the yeah, fleet human resource position at um, Maritime Headquarters. Um, and then after that, I was due to go back to see. I actually had a posting to HMAS Ballarat as an APO and then was supposed to go straight on to PO course. And I, I just, I have this very vivid recollection of sitting down with my, my poster at the time. And, and he had he had mapped out the next 15 years of my life in the Navy. That's confronting for anyone. <laughs> It was full on. And I just remember looking at it thinking, you, you put a lot of effort into this and I'm about to burst your bubble because I'm going to ask some pretty tough questions about family and, and things like that. Um, but, yeah, I was already at that stage um, seeing my husband and I just couldn't reconcile in my mind um, how continuing to have a seagoing career was going to work with having a family. And, you know, I'd also sort of started thinking, you know, more deeply about some other experiences that I had and, you know, whether it was really going to be the right thing for me moving forward and I decided that that was probably time to was time for me to move on so you get out get married raise a family 
Can you sum up a bit, I guess, to that life after service experience, what you're doing today? And I understand that your husband was in the army as well. Yeah, so um, my husband was an engineer in the army and then he went on and studied um, medicine. I've always felt a really strong connection uh, back to the military. When I left, I spent quite a few years um, doing reserve time. I did some project work for Navy Health Reserve. I went back and did a couple of stints in defence industry as well. So I've always felt a really strong connection Um, to the military then I think just through word of mouth I think military people gravitate towards one another as well Um, my husband started seeing more and more um, veterans through our practice through his through his practice general practice and he found that quite a lot of veterans he was seeing were in had all sorts of issues physical injuries and, and psychological injuries as a result of their service in the military so he started exploring some options to treat them a little bit differently and started treating them um, with medicinal cannabis where it was appropriate. So um, we decided that based on the results that he was getting that we were going to set up a specific clinic, a medicinal cannabis clinic, where we don't only see veterans, but we are getting more and more veterans coming through the doors. And then also um, we've moved into a medicinal cannabis supply and manufacture venture called um, Provocatus, which um, we've partnered with some other um, people and some of them are veterans as well. In So we're really passionate about providing um, equitable access to, um, to people um, who are looking for you know, an alternate treatment method who are suffering chronic pain and we are finding that it's having really good outcomes on ex-serving members. That's wonderful to hear, Casey. And it's been more than a decade since you left. And as you just touched on then, you've always felt a strong connection to the military since. But I guess now you've had a bit more time removed from it. How do you look back on your Navy career as a job and how it grew, challenged and changed you as a person? I look back so fondly of my time um, in the Defence Forces and I often get asked now um, from some friends whose children are um, starting to get to, um, you know, the point where they need to start thinking about their careers, about would I recommend a career in, in the ADF and I unreservedly say yes. I don't think there's another profession where from such a young age you can be trusted with to have such a huge level of responsibility and have such incredible experiences. You know, it's not something that you have to do forever, but I I certainly think in terms of those experiences, the skills, the things that you learn, the people that you meet, I can't think of another career where you get that sort of exposure. Casey, it's been a real enlightening conversation. Thank you for your time your service and sharing your story today. Thank you for having me, Alex. That was the final episode of Season 5. Life on the Line and our video documentary series, Life After Service, will return in 2022. Make sure you're subscribed to us in your preferred podcast app, on YouTube and on social media to know when we're back. And keep your ears peeled in December for our annual Christmas special. We're on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube at Life on the Line Podcast, on Twitter at L-O-T-L Pod, and on LinkedIn at Thistle Productions. Our website is www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com, and our email is podcast at lifeonthelinepodcast.com. Life on the Line is brought to you by Alex Lloyd, Angus Horden, Thomas Kay, Sharon Maskeldare, and Rohan Viswalingam of Thistle Productions. Our artwork is by Mark Thacker of Big Cat Design. Our music is by Dan Van Werkhoven. 
Thank you all for listening, and lest we forget. Thank you.